Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Okay, well, welcome into the Apex Hour, everyone. It's a Thursday, and I am so happy to be here. Joining me in the studio today is artist and sculptor Al Farrow. Welcome in. Great. And it is just such a pleasure to have Al on campus. This is actually your second or third time, second time on campus, I think. Go ahead and bring the mic a little closer, I think. Perfect. There we go. And um, yeah, and so you've been in Cedar City a couple times because our Southern Utah Museum of Art has a huge exhibition of your work right now. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm really excited about it. This has been a really great, great event for me. That's so great. And it's on until uh, October 5th, I think. That's great. And one of the things that we're so excited about is that this morning you also participated in our Apex event, which is uh, our weekly lecture series, and we had a great time to talk. So what I'd love to do is just kind of start out with you telling us a bit about um, inspiration. We've talked a lot. I want to try to see if we can not double too much of what we talked about this morning, but um, I'm interested in who inspires you you and um, who has inspired you in art in the past? You know, I'm pretty much a self-motivated person, and uh, I don't have a lot of heroes in in the art world, uh, two that I can think of that have impressed me and inspired me are Francisco Goya, who worked in the early 17, uh, the late 1700s, early 1800s, and he did social commentary art, which is what I do. Uh, he did things, uh, prints called like Los Caprichos, right. which is uh, all the caprices of life, and he showed every human foible. Uh, but his most impressive for, for me personally was his series, The Disasters of War. Oh. And this was during the Napoleonic Wars when uh, we don't know because we weren't there how cruel people are. We know from today's um, uh, armed conflicts how cruel people can be. But some of the etchings he did are like things of uh, people cut up and stuck on dead tree branches. Whoa. And all their limbs severed and their head uh rape scenes. Yeah, and he showed wow. all the awful things that happened in war. And as somebody who entered the art world to become a social commentary artist, that was really, really strongly inspirational to me. Wow. The other artist I can think of offhand is uh, uh, Honoré Daumier, okay. who in the middle 1800s did a lot of social commentary art. Now, he was a painter, he was uh, a sculptor, and he also did political cartoons. And he made fun of lawyers 
and politicians. <laughs> and he actually got thrown in jail. Oh, really? For, for, for that, yeah. Uh, I don't remember how much time he actually spent in jail, but he definitely died a pauper. Yeah. And after he died, all the galleries came in like vultures and bought up everything from his his widow, uh-huh. who had no idea about selling or pricing or anything else. Uh-huh. So he, it was it was a really sad story, or at least a sad ending to a story. But he was a wonderful painter. He really was more modern than anyone in his time, and and his work sort of predates um, impressionism. But it 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 has elements that the impressionists took mm. took off on. Mm. Um, his sculptures uh, in bronze, he did a lot of clay sculptures of, of politicians and uh, uh, lawyers, mm-hmm. and he also, uh, translated some of them into bronze. And I fashioned my own modeling style for bronze casting uh, after him. Uh-huh. And so th- those are my two really, really strong main influences. Wow, so uh, powerful. I don't have a lot of contemporary heroes. Uh-huh. A lot of contemporary art to me is uh, too intellectual and uh, not visceral enough. There's not enough emotion and feeling. It's it's art about art making. A lot of contemporary art goes in that direction. And I, I'm sort of a, um, a rebel yeah. <laughs> in the art world in that I, I do figuration. I do, uh, my current work is architectural, but it's uh, super detailed mm-hmm. and very, very uh, really detail-oriented. Uh, so... Uh, I, I don't fit in the, the mainstream of the art world. I'm sort of a little bit of a radical, so and that's how I see myself. You've always been a bit of a rebel, it seems, I and think so. and kind of come into your work uh, maybe not in a traditional sort of way. Could you talk just a little bit about um, that 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 the early success uh, of your art and coming to that time that you are now. In the talk today, we talked a lot about your early life, and I'd love to sort of hear more of that middle time when the art was really coming forth. Well, I always felt I could do what I wanted to do. Ah. Uh, I always had a personal, a sense of personal freedom. And so I would do the art. Um, I think my work was good enough to get gallery shows and Unfortunately, most of my gallery shows didn't sell anything oh, no. uh, year after year after year. Uh, some things would sell eventually, but uh, I, I had a lot of shows that had no no sales. So I wasn't widely received. Mm. I think some of my work offended people yeah. um, because I am commenting on things that uh, other people might think is okay. Right. And so uh, that was a lot of my early experience. I just kept going. I would... Mm. I would just think if nothing happened, nothing sold, wait till they see the next show, I'm just going to be even stronger. And yeah. it would be. And I just kept uh, basically doubling down. Right. And eventually I started getting some recognition. But my real recognition happened when I was 65. Wow. That's 10 years ago. That's amazing. Um, and it was when a museum the De Young Museum in San Francisco bought a major piece that I did. Mm-hmm. Now I had sold pieces in this this body of work and and had lots of exhibitions, but um, still not any wider recognition. Once the museum bought it, it was really strange. I mean, everybody started treating me differently. <laughs> My friends, all the artists, it's like they all of a sudden put me on a pedestal. I don't uh, want to be on a pedestal. I'm just a regular guy. Uh, <laughs> so I said, you know. It, 
they would say, "Oh, you're 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 famous now. You know, you're in a museum, mm-hmm. um, and you're making money." And they'd look at the price list and see add up all the numbers, but nobody was buying them. Right. <laughs> and so it was. It, it just looked like so they thought I was rich. I was getting famous, and they treated me differently. And I really, really didn't like that. I, 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 I'm just a regular guy. Um, you know, I like to do all the things regular guys do. Yeah. Uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> so. Uh, I wanted to be treated normally. Yeah. And so eventually things calmed down. But I still get feedback in the, in, from other artists, you know, where there are either jealousies or, or, you know, other emotions attached to their view of who and what I am. I'm still the same guy who came out of Brooklyn and started making sculptures, you know, nothing much has changed except I've got older. <laughs> What an interesting commentary on fame and money that is, you know, that the minute that you were in a gallery, then all of a sudden things change. Yeah, in the museum. In the museum, right. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, you know, that, that, that is a level of respect mm-hmm. that goes. And so after that, that initial museum exposure, uh, they, they gave me a show to introduce my work because this was a piece that commented on Catholicism. And so, uh, they wanted to include things that commented on Islam and Judaism. And so they, they gave me a show that was, um, inclusive of, of the religions I was working with. But the really coolest thing was they let me curate the walls in the gallery of that museum oh. that I was surrounded by. So I had this big room and a, a bunch of sculptures in the middle. And I got to choose what went on the wall. And oh, you know what I put on the wall? No, what? Goya's Disasters oh, of War. Yeah. Um, some of Daumier's prints. Yeah. I did, I put, I picked, cause the, the museum, museum had archives of all these prints. And so they let me go through the archive and just choose. Oh. And I got to put, surround my work with my few heroes. And, and everything was black and white and, um, black and white prints. No color. I didn't want any color in the room uh, um, because my work is not really colorful. I right. didn't want to pull the eye away. Right. And so I, I, it was all social commentary and, and all black and white. And it was a beautiful show. That sounds amazing. And what a, what a beautiful experience to be able to surround yourself with your, your mentors from another yeah, time. It was, it was, I never in, in my wildest imagination, imagination would think that I, I would, be able to curate the walls of a museum ever. That's amazing. So life started really opening up at that point. Yeah. And then, um, the, the measure of respect went up a lot all around, especially Mm. in art dealers Mm. and institutions. And so I started getting shows in other museums and, uh, just getting a lot more recognition, lots more articles written about my work. Uh, it's interesting. Um, nothing changed except the museum bought one sculpture. <laughs> right. But it made everything else, you know, change. Well, we are on the radio, and I would love, um, maybe this is an unusual exercise for you, but um, the exhibit is at our museum, but can, can you describe wrath and reverence for our radio listeners? Okay, that's not easy. Cause I know. There's a lot of sculpture there, and they're very detailed, and some are very big and heavy. Uh, I basically make... Um, religious temples and reliquaries out of uh, violent materials, guns, bayonets, uh, bullets, 
shell cartridges, all the violent things, elements of war and, and gang violence or whatever else. But, but those are, those are my materials. I also use, of course, steel and stuff. Things are welded and, uh, bolted together, but you cannot, no matter how hard you look, you won't find one weld or one screw or bolt. It's, it's all hidden work. So all you see is this, these uh, magnificent structures that are very detailed uh, and very architectural. So from a distance, uh, they just look like architectural models and it draws people close. And once a person comes close, they start discovering um, uh, the materials and then all of a sudden they're hooked and they really spend time, uh, much more time than they do on other art in general. Uh, and they, they, and, and, and the, another interesting thing is that this work appeals to so many different types of people. There are people who like it because of its architectural references. Others like it for its commentary. Others like it because there are guns in there. I mean, there's, and, and of course I'm, I'm commenting on religion. A lot of these are all religious structures. So I'm commenting on the relationship between war and religion. And in my opinion, it goes back all through history and into prehistory. So, uh, there's a lot to see and a lot to think about, but it's, it's, it has a lot of subtlety so that you don't discover, uh, the material use until you get really close. And w- that's, that's great. And, and reminder that it, if you want to check it out right now live, you can go check it out at our Southern Utah Museum of Art through October 5th. I also would love to point you to Al's website and I believe it's just alfaro.com. That's correct. And so there, there's several still images from all of your body of work there. Yeah, this goes back a lot of years, decades. Yeah, decades. Uh, yeah, I had a series uh, I call my African series. It's bronze, and it has to do with the the influence of technological cultures and, and weapons-making cultures on indigenous cultures. Mm-hmm. I have an Icarus series that comments on... Uh, flight from the time of the Icarus myth in Greek mythology and all the way through bombers and um, jets and all kinds of weaponry. Um, so th- th- that's those are just two of the series they can find. I have a series on women, um, which go from female robots to, um, you know, fashion models. Um, yeah. It's commentary work. So... Um, the, the robot is really, truly interesting. If you look on the website, it's a takeoff on Rodin's uh, sculpture from the gates of hell uh, called She Who Once Was the Helmet Maker's Beautiful Wife. And it's a sculpture of a woman sitting on, on a pile of rocks. And she's really old and she's looking at her body and she's recognizing that most of life is behind her and her body is wasted and all that. It's a really compelling uh, figural sculpture. So I did a, a robot in exactly the same position on a pile of rocks, copying those elements yeah. and very detailed casting using um, parts of uh, models from military tanks and uh, airplanes and yeah. engines and all this kind of stuff all combined to make a robot in the position of, and I call it, she who once was the engineer's beautiful wife. And he was commenting on obsolescence of the human, and I'm commenting on uh, obsolescence of technology because we haven't even got to robots that far, but she's already obsolete. Wow. 
Yeah. And again, you can check out all of the work on, on alfaro.com. Uh, and I invite you to. So this is a good time. We're going to come back and talk more about social commentary. I want to get into talking about the hidden, some of the hidden things in your work, some of the extra details to look for inside. And we also want to get into talk about arts education. But before we do that, as always, I have a song for you. Um, this is a Ligeti piece called Musica Ricciacarda, number seven in B flat major. This is the apex hour. Check it out. See what you think. Okay, welcome back to the Apex Hour. This is Lynn Vartan. That song, uh, the title is Musica Ricercata, number seven, B-flat major. Um, the composer is Ligeti, and I do want to tell you the performer because she's really quite something. The touch is really amazing. Katya Bunatvili. Um, so check her out. She has an album called Motherland and, and her touch on the keyboard is really nice. Um, all right, we are back in the studio with Al Farrell. Welcome back. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, so we left off and we were talking about your work and I wanted to ask something I've been dying to ask. And sometimes artists put, I mean, your work is so detailed already, but sometimes even beyond that detail, there can be hidden things, hidden meanings, hidden things that maybe only the, the truly observant eye can see. And I wondered, are there such things in your works? Lots. <laughs> First of all, it's a very multi-layered experience. I'm not just doing commentary on war and religion. I'm also playing with history and things like that, religious history and history in general, uh, history of architecture, all, all sorts of things. I have uh, on my larger pieces, well, actually most of my pieces have something in the interior. Uh-huh. I make it very hard to see. One of the reasons is I like people to get really close, and so they get their nose right up to the windows to see what's inside. I often use uh, antique red fabrics to hold a relic or something, uh, a bone or a, a book, uh, whatever. I put stuff in there, but you can't readily see it, so you got to get very close. I also encourage people to use their... Um, Flashlights from their phones oh, really? to look inside. Yeah. And even when I'm showing in various museums, I ask them to encourage visitors to do that. And they do. Uh, and it's, it's great because it, it sort of creates an, an intimacy. Yeah. Anyway, inside one, like one church, uh, a couple of churches I've done, uh, I have a Bible. I usually buy these really 150, 200 year old Bibles on eBay. Yeah. Um, and then I open it to Revelation. Because uh, it's an apocalyptic uh, oh. part of the Bible. And then I insert a facsimile of Albrecht Durer's Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse oh. uh, that I, I just make a print and I size it to the size of the Bible. And then I antique it to make it look as old as the Bible. And and so it would be a, one of the things you'd find in the interior. But you got to look. Yeah. Inside my big cathedral, there's a spine. And I call it the spine and tooth of Santo Guero. And so there is a spine down the nave of the cathedral. There's also a tooth with a, a gold filling uh, really? over one of the doors. And so you just have to look around and try to find it. Um, I totally missed those the first time around. I'm going back to the museum to look at that. It's in a, a, a small window. Okay. In, in the, the piece of architecture that's just above the door, one okay. of the side doors. Okay. Uh, but that's, that's just a couple of examples that, that I, I really layer a lot. I comment even on, like in religious history, um, I've done a, a lot of, uh, fi- um, sculptures that I call trigger finger of Santo Guero. Santo Guero, by the way, is a, a saint I made up, uh, so that I don't insult anybody who actually has a patron saint. Uh, so, uh, the trigger finger, I've done 21 of them now. Mm. Now, there was a, uh, uh, online, I was following a thread of commentary on my work and somebody said, how many fingers did Santo Guero have? <laughs> you know, that was perfect because the guy missed the whole point. Um, <laughs> historically, anytime anything became extraordinarily valuable, fakes, would abound. Uh-huh. And so relics and reliquaries were the most valuable objects during Middle Ages and Renaissance in Europe. So, of course, they had, there's 60 churches in Europe that have the head of uh, John the Baptist. Right. There are six churches that have 
the breast of St. Bernadette. Yeah. So that's sort of the equivalent of 21 fingers, trigger mm-hmm. fingers for Santo Guero. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually making a joke about how how many can there possibly be? Right. Uh, just because they had that value, people would dig up graves and actually make new reliquaries, hire a jeweler to make a nice presentation, and then they'd sell them to, you know, the Medici's or yeah. whom, whoever rich family would would support or collect those kinds of objects. And so there's a lot of fakes everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but every one of those fakes that's in a church has official paper, papers by either a pope, a bishop, or a cardinal. And so they're all official. Mm. So good luck, St. Bernadette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And did I read somewhere that, that one of your works is, is, is a work inside a work? Uh, yeah. Um, I did, um, a sculpture, an Islamic, uh, piece of architecture that's the tomb of the first leader of independent Pakistan, Jinnah. And so it's the national mausoleum of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And in my research uh, on architecture, I just came across an image and I was just floored by the simplicity and the beauty of this piece of architecture. So I decided to do a takeoff on it in my materials. And so I made it in a small scale because the guns I really wanted to use just weren't quite long enough Mm. to get the, the full angles that I wanted. So I made a small version, but it didn't have any punch. It didn't have any power. And so... I thought, okay, I'm going to trash this. Uh-huh. But all my friends are like, no, I'll take it. Yeah. I thought, no, <laughs> I'm not giving it to anybody. <laughs> this is not something I'm proud of. And so I decided to make it the interior of a bigger version. Oh. And so I made the same piece much larger using the guns I originally wanted and creating a, a steel extension to the gun so that it looked like part of the gun but isn't really. And and that gave me the proportions I needed. And so I made the the relic the former version, and it's complete. The walls are covered in bullets. The dome is co- covered in bullets and all that. But on its own, it just didn't have a lot of power. Yeah. But the piece, the larger one, and most people don't even realize that there's something inside, but uh, the larger one has really got punch. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a pure white piece with black guns and it's stark and strong um it's it's one of those things where a lot of people don't look inside but when you do now i don't use um bones or other relics for uh the architecture i do on islam or judaism because mm-hmm. those religions don't use those relics and I want to be respectful. So I only do it for Catholic pieces. Oh. So I, the Protestant pieces have the Bibles. Uh, Jewish pieces have either a Torah cover or other, um, religious paraphernalia like okay. a, a shawl or, or what they call tefillin, which is a, a morning ritual object for religious Jews. Uh, so I, I will find, th- I have one that has an army issued, Israeli army issued, uh, bag that held the tefillin and the shawl. Mm. And so I have that all combined inside one of the synagogues. So this is the sort of thing that you really have to look hard. Mm. But you can have a very satisfying experience not looking inside, just enjoying the exteriors. But there's more. And like like we were talking, it is a lot of hidden things. Uh, And some are are humorous, and most people don't recognize the humor because 
the content is so dense. Yeah. But there is humor layered in historically and architecturally. And so I, I do have a sense of humor and I am really playful with materials. Yeah. So the materials, um, I, like I'm using lots of hammers from uh, revolvers as corbels to support a roof. So things like that, I'm, you know, it's, that's pretty technical, but just the same. Uh, there's a creative, uh, application and a playful application of, of violent materials as architectural elements. Well, that's just a, a great reason to look inside. I mean, I, I looked inside some and found a few things, but now I really want to go and look again and look more online do people kind of track the secrets have you ever found a thread that sort of tracks all the hidden meetings no i don't actually look at my um mm. much online yeah. every once in a while like one time i went out to dinner with a friend about a year ago and he said hey i love your instagram page and i said i don't have an instagram page <laughs> and he said yes you do <laughs> so when i got home after dinner i i, I checked it out and there was 800 things on there and it wasn't yours. And e no, and everybody, each one had some kind of thread. And I'm like, whoa, who did this? <gasps> oh, my god! But it's just people doing it. That's oh, wow. hashtag Al Faro, you know? Oh, my god! And somebody set up a page on Facebook. I don't do Facebook at all. Oh. I, I, I personally find all social media a time suck. And yeah. I want to put my time in my art. Right. So I, I avoid it. Yeah. No, my, my sons, my wife, everybody else I know does Facebook. But I'm, I'm, I'm not there. You're pure. Well, <laughs> I'm not pure. <laughs> In a way of speaking. Yeah, but I, I am pure when it comes to social media. Right. Um, I even did a piece um, for a portrait show that I was invited to be part of, and it's called Self-Portrait as Santo Guero. Ah. And this is a, a piece where I found a saint online holding um, a church, a model of a church, and I cut out his face and I put my own face in, and I put my cathedral in his hands, and and then I surrounded him with a halo of bullets and a background of bullets, and it just came off really, really great. That's cool. But the funniest part was the face I used was a drawing of me that I didn't do. Oh. It came from Ripley's Believe It or Not. No. Yes, Ripley. this is a shock. Someone sent me this. Ripley's, you know how they do the comic yeah. uh, in the comic section of uh -huh. the newspaper. They, I mean, even when I was a little kid, and they they had Ripley's in the comic section, and so they talked about my cathedral and and that it was so long and so high and you know weighed so much and and that it's all made out of guns and bullets. They were actually trying to buy my work. Ah. But they didn't want to spend the money. Oh. <laughs> so they wanted to put it in one of the Ripley museums. They have museums all over the world. Yeah. Um, which I didn't even know. I knew there was a tourist trap in San Francisco, yeah. but I did not. So anyway, they couldn't buy it because yeah. they, they, we wouldn't come down in price. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to at least get my investment back. Right. And so, um, so they didn't end up buying anything. Instead, they did a cartoon of me. I don't even know where they got my face oh. and and my work. Oh. So they had the cathedral in there and my face. So I decided I'm going to – they didn't even ask permission. So right. I said, I'm going to turn it around and yeah. use it in my self-portrait piece. That's and so 
It was really good. That's a great story. I love it. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's perfect. It's time for another song. So the next song I have for you is called Alam. And the artist is N-E-S. And um, it's not a well-known artist. I'd love to tell you a little bit about them. Uh, Their little blurb is three languages, three instruments, three artists, one unified musical identity. So they're three international musicians, um, one from Spain, one is French-Algerian, and then a French contemporary cellist. Um, And then they have some percussion added in. And they say, through a process of self-discovery and exploration of their roots and identity, their sound has been shaped by the richness and background of their lives and musical experiences, ranging from jazz to classical, soul to Arabic traditional music. Their songs are in English, Arabic, and French and are full of grace and emotion and nurtured by the magic chemistry that emerges from their creative minds. So check them out. That's the artist N-E-S, Ness, and the song is called Alam.
بحلم بالسلام والأمان في بستان الحب Okay, well, we are back here on the Apex Hour. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. My name is Lynn Vartan. I'm joined in the studio with sculptor and artist Al Farrow. That song that you just heard was called Alam, and the group is N-E-S or Ness. Um, Just a really great combination of sounds. I just think that that groove is so cool. So welcome back, Al. Thank you. All right. So I would love to ask you about, um, or at least continue the conversation that we started earlier about social commentary in art. Um, it is such a powerful, uh, presence in your art. Would you say that it is the most important aspect of your art? Well, not exactly. I think beauty is very important. Ah. Uh, And that's an interesting statement because most contemporary art has nothing to do with beauty. Mm. It's actually anti-beauty. Mm. That since uh, the Dada movement in the um, around the time of the Great Depression, uh, uh, beauty has been a less and less of an issue in right. art. There's always art that's about beauty, landscapes and flower paintings and all that yeah. sort of thing. But but beauty itself has been mostly rejected by the avant-garde as the avant-garde progressed. Um, I think beauty is universal. Mm. And something beautiful usually is attractive to people of any age or any culture. Right, okay. Uh, I think even animals respond to beauty. But just the same, I use beauty, the beauty and harmony of architecture, I use it as a hook to get people close. Mm. Because I subdue my colors and I subdue uh, a lot of things and keep quiet but attractive from a distance Mm. and my concept is to get people to see it from across a room and want to see more Mm. and so the form the beauty of the form is actually that the hook and so as people get close they discover wow there's a lot of detail and they start looking and then they start discovering guns you know bayonets and bullets and so for me beauty is a really important issue 
And, and I would hope, really hope that my work helps bring back some appreciation of beauty in contemporary art. It doesn't all have to be, you know, art about art making or art about, you know, some very abstract concept mm -hmm. that most people going to contemporary exhibitions, especially uh, like conceptual art, they have no, there's nothing they, they can't access it. They don't have anything they can relate to. Mm. If you're not educated in that kind of art, you can't appreciate it. The kind of art I make, little kids appreciate, even if for its dollhouse effect, because it's a miniature, right. detailed miniature of something, you know, much larger. And so even little kids respond to it and a lot. And then of course, little boys, they love guns. And right. so, you know, it's all about power. And right. so, but, but the, <laughs> there's different. Um, ages and levels of response, but there's also so many layers of what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. And, and again, I don't expect everybody to, to really, um, get it all. Mm. I, I put so much in. I mean, some of these pieces take more than a year to make. Right. And so I'm spending all this time and I have lots of time to, um, play with it, you mm -hmm. know, and mm -hmm. I like the idea of being playful in my work. Mm -hmm. Um, because the the content is so serious and dense, uh, the the playfulness is not always uh, readily apparent. But I'm cluing you in. You can yeah. look, yeah. and you might find some. Yeah. Uh, there's plenty of it. Yeah, that a couple things came to mind with what you were just saying, and I wanted to ask. So regarding the beauty concept, um, if somebody asks you, which I'm sure people have asked you before, then are guns beautiful? Yes. Yeah. Form follows function. That's a Frank Lloyd Wright um, saying. Mm -hmm. And if you really think about it, the more perfect something is for its function, actually, the more beautiful it is. Ah. I mean, think about a hammer, for example. And I have probably 40 or 50 different kinds of hammers. Oh. And each one has its own beauty because each one has a specific purpose. Yeah. One is to drive nails. Another one is to tap things into place. It's plastic or, or made out of uh, rawhide or they're not all iron, you know, right, right. and they're not all for driving home a blow. Yeah. There's something called a dead blow hammer, which is mostly plastic. It has loose lead inside so that it'll really slam. Anyway, there's so many kinds. <laughs> Each one is beautiful because it fits its purpose so well. And they're basically abstract sculptures. Oh, okay. You know, they have beautiful form and line. Um, and so anything can be beautiful if it, if it has a function and it's perfect for its function. Okay. And think about any of the objects around you. You know, so how many bottles are really beautiful? Right. You know, uh, you can apply it to almost anything. Okay. That, I hadn't really thought of it that way. And that makes a lot of, um, could, because I think that that's something that comes up. People say that there's, you know, this juxtaposition of the, the beauty of the architecture. And perhaps for some, they say, Oh, but guns aren't, I don't find guns beautiful. But with that description, it makes complete sense. Well, also, you know, when I use, when I'm searching for guns for my work, I find the modern guns to be very, um, very much less attractive. Mm. The earlier guns have an architecture to them, lots of steps in the form, lots of curves. Some of them are actually really elegant. Yeah. Um, so even though they're, they're violent materials, uh, there is a real beauty to them. Yeah. And a lot of people collect guns yeah. mm. uh, for their beauty. Right. 
Uh, look cool. close sometime and, and analyze it as a sculpture. Yeah. And you'll see that it, 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 they can be really interesting. Yeah. The other thing that struck me when you were saying is the little little girls looking at the dog dollhouse and little boys liking guns, which uh, begs the question from me. Uh, we t- we've been talking a lot about the reaction to your work and how overwhelmingly positive that it has been. Um, have you found any difference between uh, male and female uh, affinity to your work or age affinity to your work? Have you found any trends there or is it no. very individual? I think it's pretty universal. Mm. I've, I've got, I'm seriously... 99.5% positive feedback. Mm-hmm. It seems like it strikes a chord on one level or another to almost everyone, yeah. partly because it's readable, it's accessible. Uh, so much art is not accessible. And this is readable in many different ways. Uh, I'm not trying to make anybody think anything specific. I'm actually just trying to lead them into looking and thinking and thinking about, you know, the content, hopefully, but not necessarily. Uh, I don't really care what people think. I just want to make them think. Yeah. And that's one of my um, reasons for making the sculptures is to provoke people into thinking. Well, thinking segues perfectly into what I wanted to talk next about, which is a little bit about education. And I know you have done some teaching in your time. And I know that, as you just said, you really want people to be thinking. Um what what do you think as as um we talk about deep thinking and and cultural connections um have you uh any comments on education education in the arts education culturally um that have come from your experiences yeah i i think that um in american schools particularly public school i think private schools can be different than that but uh, public schools uh, are really focused for the last 30 years at least on the so-called three R's, you know, learning, reading, writing, and, and maths and mm-hmm. stuff. A lot of schools eliminated the sports program, the music program, and the arts program, or else at least minimized it. Right. So they're not getting um, deep instruction or exposure. And so that's left to the families. Often families don't do it. I mean, some people who are economically deprived can't afford to pay the admission to the museum uh, for a family. So so they never get the exposure. Uh, I've had some experiences when I was traveling in Europe where I um, encountered in every museum I went to, in London, in Amsterdam, in Florence, in Brussels, these these countries really support the arts. They send their school kids, public school kids, into the museums. I was in Brussels. Um, I had a show there at that time, and I was touring some of the museums. And the Magritte Museum, which is, you know, he's a surrealist uh, painter, um, pretty much world-renowned, and there's a whole museum just on him. And I encountered like eight, nine-year-old kids, school groups, uh, Learning to analyze surrealism, mm. I, I have never seen that happen here in in the United States. Yeah, that's uh, amazing! Wow. And and the teacher was taking the time. And these kids were not privileged kids. Some of the kids were white. Some of the kids were uh, African. Some of the kids were you know from other countries and cultures. They were getting an education in art, and and it was a very common experience 
And another experience, I, I was in Amsterdam at, in the Rijksmuseum, and my wife and I had toured uh, the museum the day before, but went back to see a few things more. And when we went back, we were passing through the room that had a lot of Rembrandts, especially his, his famous uh, Night Watch. Mm-hmm. And then there was another biblical painting, another really large painting, um, uh, something that had to do with a, a chapter in the uh, Old Testament. In any case, as we were passing through the room, I heard the teacher, as they were organizing the students, they were all sitting in a semicircle around this one painting. And the teacher said, okay, kids, today we are looking at only one painting. Wow. Now, how many people go to a museum and look at one painting? I know. You know, that <laughs> yeah. is seriously different. Yeah. So we stuck around to listen in a little bit and um, heard her introduction and all that. And then we moved on to address our own agenda. Two hours later, we're coming, leaving the museum and going back through the same gallery. And the kids were all still sitting in front of this one painting. Yeah. And wow. the teacher was having each student interpret various elements uh, for their symbolism and and how things connect from one symbol to another mm-hmm. and how it connected to the Bible and how it, it was just totally amazing. Yeah. The focus that this class group had, these were middle middle school kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that what they call it, middle school? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, they were not, you know, usually they're, they're fidgety and they're you know, not paying attention. It's amazing yeah. to see this kind of focus, and especially from the teacher, to drive that focus, you know, and keep them there. Yeah, it, it was, it it really warmed my heart, and I thought, why don't we do this in America? Yeah. And when I was in London, there were groups from Holland. Yeah. When I was in, there's school groups in every museum you go to in Europe, and many. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you see six school groups, and they're all milling around on different floors. We we don't. We don't want to spend the money. Right. We don't want to spend the time. Um, not everybody's going to be a mathematician. We don't need to focus on maths that deeply. Mm. You know, it's a competitive attitude with testing in the world and all that. But you know what? The arts really enrich life and all the arts and teaching children to enjoy, appreciate, interpret, uh, analyze and understand really enriches their life for the whole rest of their life they have this ability Mm -hmm. if we don't give it to them as children they're not going to get it most likely yeah thank you for that i mean i am certainly in that camp and agree 100 percent. so thank you for articulating that point we have time for one last song and um this song is called aquarius and the artist is quentin sir jacques uh, a Parisian artist uh, born in Paris in 1978, very eclectic improviser, new music performer, and a composer of music for film, theater, and radio. So this is Aquarius, um, and you're listening to the Apex Hour, KSUU Thunder 91.1. <laughs>
Okay, well, welcome back. That was Aquarius by the artist Quentin Sirjac, a Parisian artist. Check him out. And this is Lynn Vartan. You're listening to the Apex Hour. And I'm going to finish up my hour with my favorite two questions to ask artist and sculptor Al Faro. So the first question that I always ask to close is, if you met the you of 10 years ago in a bar fight, who would win that fight? All right. Tough question. Um, first of all, I don't like bars. Second of all, I don't like fighting. I had my share of street fighting growing up uh, in Brooklyn. So um, with that said, the fight would be much more intellectual. It yeah. would be an argument. Perfect. And so, uh, of course, I would win because <laughs> it's me against me. But the me of 10 years ago um, would probably lose to the current me. All right. Because I think I've evolved a lot in those 10 years. I love it. Thank you. And the last question that I always ask is, um, what's turning you on this week? And this can be anything. It can be a book. It can be something you read. It can be a song. It can be anything you want. But Al Faro, what is turning you on this week? Actually, it's the response I'm getting to my work. Wonderful. I am so thrilled with the amount of positive feedback and and uh, acknowledgement uh, of people saying they were touched or moved or things like that. Any artist would just die for that. Uh, uh, most people don't get that who who are you know visual artists. Yeah, and I'm getting a lot of that, and that really turns me on. I'm going to go home very feeling very rewarded. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure to have you on. And again, we want to make sure to let everybody know that the exhibition is on uh, through till October 5th at our at SUMA, our Southern Utah Museum of Art. And you can also go online to alfaro.com and check out more of the work. So we're going to say goodbye for this week. And thanks so much for listening, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.